0: We will be in Psalm 5, Psalm 5 this evening. Hope that you had a a good prayer time. I'm going to venture into some deep waters tonight. I realize that I may find myself a little in over my head, but there are psalms that we refer to sometimes as imprecatory psalms. And basically these are ten psalms that have specific prayers of judgment upon the wicked, upon the ungodly. And these have been through the centuries, these have been a little bit of a trouble spot for believers. They've they've been widely controversial, especially for the unsaved who like to try to find chinks in a Christian's armor or try to point to passages of Scripture or try to find contradictions in Scripture. Sadly, the unsaved who many times don't even take the time to read the Bible, who don't even know Scripture, they like to cherry-pick and they like to try to find areas where they think that they can have a gotcha moment, and they got the Christian, and they can get the Christian to uh, be quiet or to not be able to give an answer. And sadly, imprecatory psalms have been avoided or they have been so controversial that a lot of times they are they're quickly passed over, and we, we don't really sometimes understand why these psalms are in the Bible and what God is doing in, or what he did when he inspired the psalmist, God breathed these words. They're in the Bible and they're, they're tough. I realized that it's a, it's a little bit of a, a steak, a little a bit of an overcooked steak to have to chew on. Uh, it takes a little while to digest. And uh, yet, these are, even though they're tough truths, they're important for us. Uh, they, they teach us. There are principles that we're going to look at tonight that, that help us. So, there are 10 that are identified as imprecatory Psalms. I'm not saying that there aren't other uh, verses here or there that might uh, be considered in that category, but there are 10 here that are considered imprecatory psalms. And we're going to start with Psalm 5. I don't know if we'll get much beyond Psalm 5 tonight due to time. But it's important that we understand certain theological principles that really provide the framework for understanding these psalms. Let's go to Psalm 5. And we see there, to the chief musician... The psalm of David, so we know David is the one that God uh, inspired. Uh, These words are God-breathed, the inspiration of God given to, to David here in writing the psalm. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my meditation. Hearken unto the voice of my cry, my King and my God, for unto thee will I pray. My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord, in the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee. And we'll look up. For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. We'll stop there for a moment, and that's important for us to understand the context and to understand in the framework, the theological framework in which David is writing by the inspiration of God here. He is praying, but notice what he says For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness. Neither shall evil dwell with thee. He references very clearly the holiness of God. He references very clearly that God is a just God, a righteous God. There is no error. There is no sin. Even Jesus makes reference as God in our study through the book of John. And he is, he is sinless. He is not a sinner Speaking of his holiness, so that's the context, that's the framework in which David is writing. We go on to verse number five. The foolish the foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. We'll pause there again. That is a verse that is tough for us. That is a hard truth to swallow. But we have to understand that God is love. In verse number five of Psalm five, does not contradict the character of God that God is love. God hates, we see that there, thou hatest all workers of iniquity. But we have to understand that in the term, or in the context, I should say, of God's holiness. God is holy, he must hate sin. And how do we separate the sinner from his or her sin? Humanly speaking, we love the sinner and we hate the sin. But we understand that the sinner commits the sin. So in loving the sinner but hating the sin, who goes to prison when there is a murder, when there is a crime? Do we just take a clump of sin and put it in the prison and lock it up like a box of coal and say, you sin, you stay there? We wish it were that easy, right? That we could just take our flesh out and the sin and just bury it or lock it away and it would not ever bother us. No, the sinner goes into the place of consequence, the prison, the jail, the consequences meted out to the sinner. It doesn't mean that God is a, a God of, of hate. It's a, if I can say it this way, it's a comparative term. When we look at the holiness of God, when we look at the holiness of God, and we look at the wickedness of sin, God hates that sin. And so in comparison to his holiness, And the fact that we cannot separate the sinner from his sin, then we have to accept this tension that God, a holy God, is angry with the wicked every day. And his hatred for sin is so great because of his holiness that there is a hatred for the sinner. It has to do with the fact that we are at enmity That we are the enemy of God before we get saved. This is simply saying all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And no sinner will enter into heaven without the righteousness of Christ. Credited his account. Without justification. That's what we have to understand in Psalm 5. There's not this hatred in the sense that we think of hatred when we think of hatred we think of malice a sinful disposition toward somebody god doesn't have a sinful disposition toward anybody his holiness repulses it repels sin god cannot be in the presence of sin he's that holy so how could god let Sinners, unjustified, unsanctified, unredeemed into heaven. They would corrupt heaven. Heaven would be a place of sin and the curse of sin. Heaven would get messed up just like the earth does. We would be foolish to go into surgery and the surgeon would walk in, having just spent time digging a ditch in his backyard. That doesn't take the time to wash up has been maybe messing around with dirty utensils and then walks in and can you imagine seeing that surgeon right before you go in for surgery? And he's greeting you and he says, I'm Dr. So-and-so. I'm getting ready to to perform your surgery. And you're looking at him and he's in his grubs from being out working in the yard and dealing with dirty utensils. You'd say, you're going to do surgery on me like that? I'm not going into that surgery (laughs) Find the exit door. I'm getting out of here, right? They wash, they are purging themselves. I remember when I went in for uh, the, the kids when they were born and having to wear the hat and having to wear the mask and having to wear the gown. And I've been to, into hospitals where there's been um, either COVID or there's been some, uh, di- not disease, but some virus or, or something, some germ, bacteria, and some infection, and I had to go in all gowned up because that infection will spread if there isn't protection, if there isn't a cleansing, a sanctifying. And we have to keep that in mind. We don't have the right perspective on sin, sadly. We get away from the Word. We get away from God. We get away from the things of God. We get away from church. We get away from God's holiness and fellowship with the Lord. And we get a tainted view of sin. Ah, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Oh, it's not that bad. Oh, I can handle it. Oh, what's the big deal? I mean, now we have churches that are opening their arms and accepting unrepentant people involved in sexual sins of various kinds. We have churches now that are opening their arms, welcoming in as members, as just regular members People who are involved in clear, open, unrepentant sin, just heard of another one today where the deacons in what would be considered a Baptist church, the deacons said, "Well, we don't want to be too hard on this individual. they've had a tough life, they've had a bad background." So we're going to go ahead, and we're going to accept this person, though they are unrepentant. They are going into a lifestyle that is clearly forbidden by Scripture. And the deacon said, "Ah, well, they've had a tough life. We'll go ahead, and we'll accept them. We'll, in, we won't, in, we won't um, condemn their their lifestyle, their their behavior. It's sad. This Psalm helps us see. I know it's not." Politically correct. I know that I would not make a woke mob happy. I know that the Twitter mob would go crazy tonight if I put this on Twitter. I don't care. So it's 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 not politically correct. I understand that the woke culture in which we live, love is love is love is love and all that mushy stuff. But we have to get back to what what the scriptures say. I don't mean this in a way that's condemning in the wrong definition of that word condemn I just simply want us to draw our attention to what God's word says about sin and how evil sin is it's it's really not the believer that condemns it's really the righteousness of God the standard of God's word that condemns the sinner and if not for the grace of God all of us would be outside of heaven and outside of the fellowship of God for for all eternity We would be in hell. So it's a reminder of the holiness of God and the standard of righteousness, of the wickedness and the evil of sin, and how we need to get back to that because we gloss over. We have lots of areas in our culture and even in our own personal lives sometimes that we just kind of gloss over. It's not that big of a deal. Well, sin is a big deal to God. As a matter of fact... One sin, one sin would condemn a sinner for all eternity. You break one point of the law, it breaks that chain, and you're guilty of all, James says. That's all it takes. And I don't think any of us would say, ah, I just had one. No, I'd say, and I'll be the first to raise my hand. I've had a multitude, and I have to get right with God on a regular basis, but thankfully I'm saved and I'm justified, but I still have to deal with the sin in my life and the flesh that I carry with me. So all that being said, Psalm 5, we come to these theological principles. We get down to verse number 6. Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. Leasing being lying. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. Boy, we deal with a violent culture today, don't we, in a lying culture. But as for me, I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy and in thy fear. Will I worship toward thy holy temple? Again, we see the holiness of God. We see worshiping God with holiness in fear, lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness, because of mine enemies, make thy way straight before my face, for there is no faithfulness in their mouth, their inward part is very wickedness, Their throat is an open sepulchre, they flatter with their tongue. Verse 10, "Destroy them, O God, destroy thou them, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels, cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against thee. The first principle that we have to keep in mind as we go through these imprecatory psalms, as we uh, we won't have time to look at all ten of them, but we have to remember that vengeance belongs to the Lord. Who is the psalmist appealing to? Is he saying, God, give me a sword. Give me the biggest sword from your arsenal because there's some heads that I want to roll. I want to chop off and see roll. Is that how David prays? Does he pray... God, give me the opportunity because I am so ready to just take somebody out. Is that David's attitude? As a matter of fact, what does David do when he has the opportunity with Saul? Two occasions in the cave. He just cuts the, uh, the, the garment of Saul and he feels so guilty, he confesses it. And then he has the opportunity while Saul is sound asleep in the camp, he has the opportunity to pierce him through, and he's even told by one of his own fellow soldiers, go ahead and do it. You're the next king, David. You could just go ahead and take care of Saul right now, and you could be the king. We'll crown you tomorrow. What does David do? He says, no, I'm not going to lay my hand on God's anointed." David appeals to God. He says, destroy them, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against thee. Again, he looks to God and he says, deal with them according to your standard. They have transgressed. They have lied. There is violence. There is deceit. There is a multitude of transgressions. They have rebelled against thee. And this is where we have to keep coming back to. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. Now, we struggle with this. Our culture says you get, they get you, you get them back. Uh, I, I, I personally get very disgusted with brawls and, and fights. I mean, if you've ever been to a hockey game, you know that you go to a, a fight and a hockey game breaks out, right? And I've never enjoyed, I've never enjoyed... Hockey. And most of the guys that you watch, they have teeth missing, and they have you know one eye that's down here and one eye, you know, right? Because they've been in so many fights. And you've probably seen them where they throw all their gloves and everything, and it's just this huge brawl. Uh, baseball's had it. The NBA's had it. I mean, there's the, the Pacers in the history of the Indiana Pacers, the, the throwdown in Motown and Ron Artest. Oh, he changed his name to Meta World Peace, and that, that made, made him different, right? He, he's all about, and then he changed his name again. Eric was just telling me that he changed his name again. I don't know what it is now. But, you know, the idea is you, you, you take vengeance, you get them back. I've dealt with many, many, many a recess fight, many. And I've had dads sit in my office across from my desk and say, my, I taught my son. You know, somebody hits you at recess, you turn around, you hit them back. I mean, what's the problem here? Okay, they were playing dodgeball, and your son ducked and got hit in the head because the player was aiming for your son's midsection, and he ducked right into the ball. It's a game of dodgeball. Well, and then they start off on how their son is justified in beating the kid to a bloody pulp right there at recess because that kid had to die for their transgression of hitting their son with a dodgeball, right? Right. You know, it's ridiculous sometimes. And and, and and then we sanctify ourselves at church because we don't do it quite the way the world does. But we give people the silent treatment. We have our little nitpicky things. Um, you know, Pastor Floyd doesn't agree with me about every little jot and tittle of every doctrine and every political position and every... Whatever, so therefore, you know, <laughs> you know how it is. I've, I've heard of some of those horror stories, I, and don't, I don't mean that the wrong way, because I, I, I love you all, and you've been, you've been a wonderful church to, to, to shepherd and to serve. Don't get me wrong. Um, the unity of this church has been a blessing. But we sanctify sometimes our vengeance, don't we? We do it in our marriages. And we begin to give each other the cold treatment, the cold shoulder, and the silent treatment. Oh, she did this, and so I'm going to have to just quietly, kind of subtly get her back with this. We'll do it with our kids. I mean, I've been guilty of it, dealing with my flesh, and the kids ruined my trip to the store. My vacation's ruined, ruined. Okay, I say that very, uh, I mean, nuance that because that's a very selfish thing for me to say. But that trip to the grocery store was terrible because they threw a fit, or they did this, or did that, and then I lose my patience. So now i got to, when we get home, I'm going to deal with them. Well, if I deal with them in anger, have I not just taken vengeance into my own hands against my own children? And then I provoke them to wrath, and we're warned as fathers about that in Ephesians 6. We sanctify it in the church, we sanctify it at home, but we can be guilty of taking vengeance into our own hands. And we can be taking revenge on one another. When many times, we don't even take the time to get to know each other. We sometimes pick up offenses from a friend of a friend of a friend. And we haven't even taken the time to get get to know the person. We sit in the auditorium with them. We sit in a class with them. We fellowship with them at at, uh, pitch-ins. But we haven't even really taken the time to build a relationship with them. But we're already talking behind their back and we're cussing them behind their back, giving them a Christian cussing behind their back and building confederates against each other. And churches split that way. One of the number one ways that Baptist churches start new churches is through a church split. It's sad. It's sad, but that's how church splits start. I've been in on visitation many a time and have knocked on doors or I've met people coming into church. Oh yeah, I used to go to so-and-so. I was at one church and the, the pastor was saying, yeah, that church that you saw down the street, it's it split from that church and that church down there split from this church 50 years ago. I mean, <laughs> so you got three Baptist churches within six miles of each other, and the two of them are, are split, and one's a split from a split. Isn't that sad? Isn't that sad? I'm thankful that we could have a vote on carpet and pews without splitting our church right down the middle. Praise God for that. All glory be to God for that. But we have, in our spirit, in our attitude, in our world teaches us, they get you, you get them back. And we have to teach it early and often in our homes. We've had to do it with our kids. We've had to make them apologize. I had one dad, and we, we, we didn't quite do it this way, but one dad came to me and said, my boys were fighting so much, I made them hug and kiss each other to make up. I'm like, whoa. Now, we didn't go that far. I think we made them give a hug to each other one time. but <laughs> The kiss was a little too far. you know. But teaching them to apologize and to make things right and not just to take revenge on each other. In this psalm, we see the principle of vengeance belongs to the Lord. We also see that God's righteousness demands judgment. Again, I've already mentioned this. The appeal is to God's standard of holiness and righteousness. God is a holy God, so there has to be a payment for sin. That payment was made in Jesus Christ. But if a person rejects Jesus Christ as their Savior, they take that payment with them to eternity in a place of judgment called hell. They then pay for their sins for eternity because they rejected the payment, the propitiation for their sins, the satisfaction for their sins when they rejected Jesus Christ, who made the payment for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So there is condemnation already upon those who reject Jesus Christ as their Savior. They remain in that condemnation. They remain as enemies. They have to then pay for their own sins if they go into eternity having rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior. And rejected his payment. So that then brings us back to God's righteousness demands judgment. God has to deal with sin. Thirdly, God's covenant love for his people necessitates intervention on their part. That is, a, that is a, a hard truth to see when people suffer the consequences of sin. That's a hard thing. That's the sobering reality. And sometimes, in the case of Israel, the judgment came from foreign nations who came in and conquered and took Israel into captivity. But we see that what God did, he brought Israel back. And the fact that even Israel is in their land today is a testimony to God's faithfulness. And when you think about it, humanly speaking, the Jews shouldn't even exist as a, as a people group. But we know that they're protected supernaturally by God. There's a remnant, and we know that they have suffered immensely. But think about the soteriological benefits of being a child of God. Think about the fact that, I tell you, this world is wicked, isn't it? And I get angry sometimes when I listen to the news and I watch the news. I mean, my blood gets to boiling sometimes when I hear some of the things they're doing to to children today. And some of the evil, wicked by leaders in our country who mock and blaspheme the name of our God and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and push forward wicked atrocities. We'll call out Putin. We'll call out Ayatollah Khomeini. But there's some rank evil in the vestiges of our government right now. It's awful. It makes us mad. And it's a sobering reminder that if not for the grace of God, we're, that's where we would be. But there not there a comfort and a peace in knowing that God is going to deal with sin? There is going to be a judgment. He is going to make all things new. And it's not going to be climate change and carbon emissions that are going to bring the judgment. It's not going to be the sun monster. Okay? The elements are going to wax or melt with fervent heat because God's going to bring judgment. And there's going to be the battle of Armageddon and the last battle. God is going to ultimately deal with sin. And the psalmist appeals to that. We already read Psalm 5 and verse 7. But as for me, I will come into thy house and the multitude of thy mercy and in thy fear will I worship toward thy holy temple. God loves his people so much. He sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins, make payment for our sins. We trust Christ in repentance and faith. And we're saved. And that debt is paid. We're justified. Sanctified. To think that God is going to one day take care of sin and evil for good. That is a blessing. That is an assurance. That is reassuring. Oh, they might get away with it for a little while. But it's not going to ultimately, they're not ultimately going to get away with it. They're eventually going to be taken care of. I, I can't help, I, I just wonder, what, what, what do you tell, if you are a humanist, a secularist, and you deny the judgment of God, the holiness of God, and salvation through Jesus Christ, what, what do you tell the parents of those two girls in Delphi who they've yet to find the, the murderer? What do, you, what, do you, what do you tell them? How, how do you explain that? I've often driven underneath that bridge over there in Delphi. I've often seen the, the barber shop where I, I get my hair cut. They, they have a picture of those two girls. Uh, I think there's a park along 25 that's named after those, those two girls. What, what, what do you tell those parents? Is there ever going to be a judgment? Is there ever going to be a payment? Is there ever going to be any justice? What if they never get caught this, this side of, of heaven? I mean, God's going to deal with that. That murderer is not going to get away with his sin. It's not going to happen. But if you're a secularist or a humanist, well, you're just going to have to accept what it is, and hopefully the next cycle of evolution will take care of... What? Well, what kind of hope is there in that? What kind of justice is there in that? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a hard reality. It's a sobering reality, but God's covenant love for his people necessitates intervention on their part. And then finally, believers must trust God with all our hearts and desires. One of the things about the imprecatory psalms, we get down to the end, but let all those that put their trust in thee rejoice. Let them ever shout for joy because thou defendest them. Let them also that love thy name be joyful in thee. For thou, Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor wilt thou compass him as with a shield. I read a psalm like that, and I want to be on God's side. I want to be on the winning side. I want that defense. I want God's defense. I mean, we can, we can pack our heat, but ultimately God is our defense. We hear about a shooting at the Walmart parking lot over here, and it scares, scares us that crime is, is that close to home. But God is ultimately our defense. We ultimately put our trust in him. And the imprecatory Psalms remind us that we must trust God with all our hearts in our desires. As the psalmist concluded here, for thou, Lord, wilt bless the righteous. With favor wilt thou compass him as with a shield. We want to be in the center of God's will and obedience to him, right with God, and in the fullest place of God's blessing. That's where God wants us to be. And uh, Lord willing, we'll be there. And I know that's just one psalm. There's nine others, but I hope that gives us a little bit of a framework for how to to how to look at these imprecatory psalms. We're out of time, so that's as far as we'll be able to to get tonight. There's more that can be said, uh, but we'll uh, we'll have to conclude with that tonight. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this psalm. Thank you for the truth that uh, penetrates our hearts, that uh, reminds us once again of your holiness and your justice and your judgment. Lord, I pray that it will humble us, that we'll live in the fear of God always, and that we'll be obedient and be faithful to you. And we pray you bless our church family. Pray for the many needs that uh, we, we have. We give those to you. We thank you that you care for our needs, that we can bring our burdens to you. And we pray that you guide and direct throughout the remainder of the week and the activities this weekend. And bless in those, we pray, and bring us back together, we pray on Sunday, in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a good rest of the week. Thank you for being here.